about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me from England is my lovely co-host, Bianca Richards. Good job. Okay. I was thinking Mangum all the way up until I said Bianca Richards. (laughs) And then we have the indispensable William Annis. Hello. Yes. So, how is everybody today? Just dandy. Oh, I... Forgot to say, um, I, I I want to say before we get started. Funny story, I went on. So there's a scenic train here in Elkins, and they have a special Christmas thing. And this year they licensed the Polar Express. Anyway, I went with my two of my nieces and my nephew, and it was awkward because I've never seen that movie. I didn't. Have you ever seen that movie? Nope. No. I heard it was creepy, so I didn't. Yeah. Well, I didn't know about the anthropomorphic hot chocolate machine. (laughs) So when it's time to come out with the hot chocolate the first time, this lady comes out with a giant puppet of a hot chocolate machine. And the puppet doesn't, yeah, the puppet doesn't end up doing a whole lot, but it's like, you know, is everybody ready for hot chocolate? And then, like, sort of the, the cat, the, um, the attendants started, like, march out into the, the center aisle of our, our train car, and they do a song and dance routine about hot chocolate. It was somewhat frightening. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> William is rendered speechless. Yeah. <laughs> what? For some reason, that reminds me of one of my mom's favorite stories about my father, who once we went to when we I was you know much too small to remember this we went to see fireworks, and when the twenty one gun salute started, my dad screamed and hit the ground. But he's never <laughs> ever ever been in a war, <laughs> so we don't know why he did that. That's insane. Oh, that reminds me of another story. So when I was a teenager, I used to do crew or rowing, and I did it at the Naval Academy, and so. We were going down the river, and then apparently they were having a funeral. So, like, our um, coach came out and on, like, a megaphone. He's like, guys, you need to hurry up. They're about to do the salute for the funeral, which they shot at the water. And I was like, crap, I don't want to get shot doing the stupid summer camp. Even though I think it's just blanks, but still. Yeah, you don't want to be on the other, the business end of a blank either. Anyway. Oh, really? (laughs) Will will it, like, hurt a blank? Um, one stupid actor was playing with a gun full of blanks and killed himself. Oh, by, was by was he, like, trying to sh- shoot really close? Yeah. Yeah. The the force of the explosion might uh, blow air too fast. I, I don't care to dwell on the physics of it. I'd rather yeah. think about the physics of articulating consonants. Yes. Um, well, before we get to that, one last thing. Hey, Williams in New York Times... Woo! I'm going to link to that. Uh, They also talk more extensively about David J. Peterson, but that was last episode, and he's not even (laughs) listening, so. 
<laughs> anyway. cares about him anymore. Yeah, we'll we'll link to this article. It's it's a little bit hilarious uh, in in some of the ways that the the reporter halfway gets the conline community, but doesn't quite. Oh, as as articles go, this one's okay. Yeah, this is yeah, it's better than most. But yeah, I I love how he says, uh, Mr. Peterson, a thirty year old who studied linguistics at the University of California. San Diego is a quote unquote con langer with a hyphen. Oh, good. <laughs> As opposed to a pro langer and a. Well, okay, whatever. <laughs> anyway, but as William was trying to segue into, and I rudely <laughs> messed him up, we are going to. It's kind of a, a binary topic because these two topics, they're kind of. They're not too closely related but they're 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 important to handle together we think yes. and that is number one designing your sound system your phonology and number two is romanization william i'll let you kind of start us off here well i sort of assume that if you're inventing a language you can handle the sound system yourself so I, I focus a little bit more in preparing on the romanization stuff but i think the number one question for for both matters is who are you doing this for if you're inventing a language for a novel then you're under completely different constraints um, especially for romanization some sort of diacritical insanity will irritate your editor so uh so, so keep that in mind that if you, if you want to go, you, you may need to adjust your romanization to make it easy for someone to typeset your novel. Yes, that's that's true, and that's something we're, we'll kind of get into. Um, yeah, I think I think the main thing in talking, uh, excuse me, I think the main thing in talking about a, the, designing your romanization in conjunction with your sound system is my advice is do the, the phonology first. Yeah, absolutely. Because basically you do your phonology and then you figure out how to write it, because write down the, the romanization because, and do it fully because what distinctions you make in the phonology are important to what you can do. Um, William, you mentioned here that syllabical structure and phonotactics will will uh, affect what you can uh, do with the romanization. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the, especially the how complex your syllables are. The, the people at Walls came up with some fun math to measure the complexity of syllables. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm most interested in – so we're going to talk about syllable parts. You have the onset, which is the consonant that starts the syllable, the nucleus – which is in the quote-unquote vowel, and the coda, which is whatever consonant is allowed to end a syllable. If you have mostly open syllables, or by which I mean there's no coda, or you have a very restricted set of sounds that can end a syllable, then that makes romanization a whole lot easier. Um, for example, Notvi uses a really funky notation to indicate ejective consonants. It uses an X, TX, KX and uh, PX. And the reason it did this, it couldn't use the normal way, which is to use uh, an apostrophe. Because in Natvi, you're allowed to end a syllable with an ejective consonant and start a syllable with a glottal stop. 
<laughs> yeah. So you you get you get this horrible confusion. So he had to do that. I um, hadn't realized that I had thought that he'd done and this may have happened with like the the name not me, but I had thought that there were some names which the spellings were already fixed for and he had to work around those, but that was actually nope. sort of a more actual linguistic thing that he had to work around. I've seen some of the original word list he got from Cameron, and they were often spelled differently. Oh, okay. So Fromer adjusted the orthography to be rational rather than the, the list he got. So the, the, the <laughs> TX decision is entirely... Okay. George, we have to pause. Yeah, well, this echo is making him sound like the Wizard of Oz telling us the magic of phonology. Okay, hold on a second. Let me... Okay, pardon us. We just had some audio problems to deal with. Now, where was I? Um, I was going to say the, the 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 last example that I had of a syllable structure playing such an important role in coming up with your writing system is in many of the languages of Australia, you have a whole bunch of coronal consonants. Um, and by coronal, I mean things made with your tongue up behind your teeth. T's and retroflex, ta, 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 laminals and all of that. Because... The syllable structure is so restricted, you can use th to indicate a laminal sound, and you can use rt to indicate a retroflex sound. And that's because the normal those sounds would not normally come together in the course of a normal um, Australian word. You would not get a t followed by an h or an r, a normal r like that, followed by a t. So you can come up with these digraphs. And that's entirely permitted because of what the syllable structure is like. If you have a much more dense, complex syllable structure, then you are going to have to resort to funky diacritics more often. Yeah, I can see where that would occur. And that's something I didn't think about um, too much uh, when I was thinking about how to do phonology and all that. Um, one thing... Uh, I want to point people to, if we're going to focus mainly on romanization, is I wrote a post, probably anybody listening to this has already seen it, but I wrote a post uh, a couple weeks ago that was design, design parameters for romanization on my personal blog. And I'm not going to read, like, sit here and read this to you, but I'm going to link it. And my thing there was, and... It's good that we're covering things that I didn't cover on her because I was just basically putting down like a rubric for figuring out what what's important to you when you're designing your romanization. Not really any language-specific uh, changes. Sure. So I just like I threw up. This was written very quickly, so I wrote down. I put down, like, four different aspects, elegance, accessibility, aesthetics, and history. And so, and I think you mentioned a little bit of what I was defining as accessibility in that, um, in that you mentioned authors, and authors have to sort of make sure that their target audience can get somewhere close to the pronunciation, the correct pronunciation. Well, uh, honestly, I don't know if it matters a whole lot if people read your novel pronunciation correctly, but they want to be able to pronounce it enough so that they can keep the characters distinct. Right. right. Which can be a problem occasionally. Yeah. I don't think there's a problem reading, like, 
was reading, oh, I wasn't reading it, my mom was reading Anna Karenina, and she can't watch any of the characters straight, because apparently she sucks Russian. <laughs> yeah, Russian novels are a famous for character. characters. So, so, yeah, keep that in mind if you're writing. That's what I call the Hellborn effect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I don't like to see. It's a bitch letter. Yeah, you don't like it. We can talk about seeing more later. Well, it's not... It's not some really that thing can happen in that effect can happen in a lot of different places actually because it's not just using CC for K as much as me and Bianca hate that. But, um, <laughs> as long as you have the reason for doing something, I'm fine with it. That doesn't mean I will enjoy it. There's yeah. a difference. Yeah. But using. I don't know. Using two fresh law is protected. I've seen people use extra law too. Yeah, I do like that. Don't use constant letters for vowels. Please. I mean, maybe you get that in a little bit. A little bit later. Schwa and all those vowels are actually a mess. Yes. Anyway, so. Actually, George, I think the questions as you laid out elegance. Accessibility, aesthetics, and, and, and history are, are a great way to think about this as well. Um, yeah. Especially elegance. You know, do you use diagraphs or do you use diacritics? Which, which do you want to look at? Like, I've seen some languages where I'm sure the language inventor adores diacritical marks. Well, should I summarize my points just to, just to state them out? Well, the one sentence summary you have in the list here is good, I think. Okay, I'll just say, okay. So, we have I I identified four categories, and people can argue with me whether these are the right things to the right sort of rubrics to judge things on, or whether I should add something or or combine something. But I have elegance, which is one graphing for phoneme. This is basically the simplest possible an elegant the the most elegant solution will be. Um, for romanization will be the simplest, you know, the, the smallest number of, of independent graphemes, the fewest diacritics and digraphs that can cover the whole, all the phonemic distinctions. Accessibility is how easy it is for your target audience to understand. And that's language specific, but anyway. Aesthetics is how it looks to you, what 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 letters you like. It's completely subjective. And history is, you know, if you're a crazy person who does the, the full-on diachronic stuff, do you reflect the history of the language in the, um, the internal history of the language in the romanization? Or whatever your, if you invent a writing system, you might do the same thing there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think under the history as well, you can include... Because no matter what letters you choose, it's going to remind you of something in the real world. Like yeah. if you choose the difference between using Y and J for the yaw sound. I chose Y for one language because I thought it had more American feel. And then I chose J for another language because I ripped some Swedish off. So I thought it was cool. <laughs> yeah. and um... I think that goes with the history, even though it's not as based in reality. It's it's, more it's just, the uh, external history more so, yeah. Which I didn't really think of where to put that, but um, basically, and um, those 
principles, you might be able to apply them, except accessibility, really, to the written, to a conscript. And all a, a lot of what we're going to talk about will apply to Cyrillicization and Hellenization. Pretty much any time you're transcribing it into another, at least into a, another system that you can do phonemic stuff with, um, transcribing uh, conlang words into like Chinese would end up with a lot of extra challenges that we wouldn't we we don't don't want to talk about here. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you even do that? <laughs> uh, during like... World War II, the Japanese were coming up with plans to represent all languages, including English, um, in some combination of kanji and kana. Really? Yeah. I, that was a very small part of their war effort, but it was considered. Uh... In, in terms of, of elegance and coming up with a practical orthography, I, I beg people – I'm going to beg people to do several things in this episode. I beg people to make the common things common and easy. If you have two kinds of E sound, make the plain E with no diacritical marks be the one that happens most often. Okay. There was one language I saw where it looked like every E had a diaresis over it. Oh, okay. But if oh. that's <laughs> right, if, if the sound is that common, how about you just make the plain E be that and use, you know, a diacritic for the least common variant of that sound? What? I mean, surely what? that's being to your own benefit as well, because most people have to push at least one or two extra buttons to do the diacritic. Right, and. And this takes us to the sound system thing. The the great danger of using an automated tool to create um, a, a, a gigantic word list, and similarly, it's a, it's a problem that can happen if you're doing it by hand carelessly. Is no natural language has its sounds occur with equal frequency throughout the language. Right, which is why you need to use the the multipliers on awkwards. But anyway, right. Yeah. Right. So, so hopefully, if you're having, you can answer the question: which sound is more common? Yeah. And which um, one gets the funky diacritic, and which one will be plain? What language is it that sh is is more common than s? So, just a plain s is used for sh, and then s z is for s. I think that's Hungarian. I think. Yeah, I yes. thought so. Yeah. So you can think of things like that. So. In some cases, you need to kind of balance that idea with also the idea of will people be able to pronounce it. But, you know, of course, no one will ever, no one just reading from the romanization will pronounce your conlang correctly without some instruction. But still. Right. Um, it's something to consider. Anyway, um, what else do we want to think about? Um... Well, you talked a little while ago about one grapheme per phoneme. So the difference between a phoneme or, phonet or a phonemic transcription and a phonetic transcription is really yes. important. So a phoneme is the sort of platonic ideal of a sound. <laughs> and, and then phonetics are how it's actually realized. Well, and, this, and this is the situation where... You know, a vowel might be pronounced slightly different in an accented syllable versus unaccented syllable. Um, and, and the point what... is, <laughs> I don't like calling it the the uh, the Platonic ideal because it's it varies from language to language. But it's what native speakers recognize as, as being the same sound, right? 
Whereas the phonetic is what actually comes out of their mouth. Right. So the, the main reason I bring that up is if you want other people to read your language, you might need to compromise that rule. So we always go back, and I certainly always go back, to Dirk Elzinger's language, Tuva, has a very phonemic spelling that gives very little clue to someone without training how a word is actually pronounced. I think I was guilty of that one as well. Yeah, actually, yeah. To think about it, um, see, I have my own sort of method behind uh, what I do with that, but you know, don't be afraid of that, really, if, if, if it's important for you that people pronounce it correctly and you have a lot of different of, of things where people can get thrown off because of allophony. Right. Because um, what, what I think of is in uh, – there's a natlang, Japanese, one – the most common romanization for Japanese – transliterates uh, a sh sound, which is an allophone of, of uh, s, as sh. Right, right. And, and there are a bunch of natural languages where that's that's always your your difficulty. I think some, is it Chemuevi? I mean, you've got some of these Uto-Aztecan languages, which provided the inspiration for Tuva, where V, va, is simply an allophone of P that yeah. occurs between vowels. And R, the, the flap, is simply T between vowels. And you can choose however you want to write it, but if you expect other people to pronounce your words, you might want to, you know, compromise that that one grapheme for phoneme. And Take. and we're we're not necessarily saying do this or or don't do this. This is this is a, a suggestion to think about right. depending think about on it. what your priorities are. If you right. if 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 you're okay with people occasionally mispronouncing something because you would prefer that the that you had an elegant system that that was purely phonemic then don't well, worry about Well, let me it. put it this way since I did a phonemic system. Um I actually ended up with a phonemic writing system because I didn't do the allophony till the end. I hate when people are like I need to do the phonology and now I need to do the allophony. Wait until you have some grammar done and some sentences before you do some allophony because you don't know what sounds are going to be adjacent to each other until then. And until you know that, your allophony may or may not make any sense. Um, but anyway, I ended up with a phonemic system because I waited till the end. But I could have changed it. I could have added an E and an O. That wouldn't have been that difficult. But I didn't want to because it was supposed to be something that most foreigners weren't aware of. Therefore, they would probably make a mistake. So if the only people reading it were the people who spoke the languages themselves they really wouldn't have a need for it. Yeah, I mean, some of this assumes that other people are going to be reading your language at all, right? Most of it, <laughs> no we could all be so it. lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Most of us do not have the experience of other people learning our language, right? So, I mean, part of this is a little bit, you know, wishful thinking, honestly. But, I mean, if, if you're planning to use your language, you have to remember it and write it as well, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of, and the morphology, it's, Probably also a good idea to have a little bit of morphology worked out before you even do the romanization, too, because there are morphophonemic systems out there. There's sure. and there's legitimate reasons to go that way. So I mean, this is my number one advice to people. It's like painting. You don't start in the corner and fill out the corner in perfect shading and then move down and down and down. You. 
You do in broad strokes. So you do a draft on the whole thing. So that would be like you do a little bit of phonology, you do a little bit of grammar. Then you start filling it in. You get more details in the phonology, more details in the grammar. And then you fill in the details. If you do the details at the beginning, you're going to have to end up redoing it and redoing it. And you're going to get tired. Yeah. My guess is some people actually do just create the full phonology from the start and go on from there. But I I do what you do is I I have one sheet of paper where – I put down the most basic series of consonants by place of articulation. So there will be a P, there will be a T, and there will be a K, almost always. And that's the starting point. And then I decide I want some uvulars, and I might want some palatals. And then you you start filling it in and moving down the the columns. Am I going to have voiced? Am I not going to have voiced? Am I going to have all the nasals? What sort of approximants? Blah, 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 right? You can fill it out. But I leave it big and open because I might decide later, hey, I want some retroflex consonants, and I need the room to write them down. <clears throat> yeah, right. and to decide how to represent them, and and if, really, if you're making going back to making the phonology, uh, I don't know if I said this earlier, but I say I say now, I strongly encourage people to create their phonology using a chart like that because you will see your series, you will see um, you know distinctive features. You will see the uh, symmetry. Right. Most sound systems aren't perfectly symmetrical, and and there's certain – go ahead. I was going to say, but they're not going to be insane like Klingon. Right, exactly. That was exactly where I was going. Most of them are not also like Klingon. Hmm. Um, (laughs) So, right. So laying them out like an IPA chart with your your place of articulation and manner of articulation chart and start from there – and then decide if things need to get knocked out or if you want to twist things or you're going to have all your nasals. All of that can be done. And that will give you something a little bit more natural than the bizarre grab bag that... Yeah. <laughs> and probably um, vowels, you might want to start with one of the the, the common systems like the, the five-vowel triangular, the three-vowel triangular, and then work from there. Sure. The square system and work from there. So let's, yeah. we should maybe tell people what that is. So the the, the three vowel triangle is, and I'm just I'm not going to talk about the letters. I'm going to make the sounds. Is e, u, and a. Right. There tends to be a lot of allophony with those because you've only got the three, and they can sort of spread out in funny ways. Um, the the square can be in in different ways. I'm used to North America where uh, e, a. Ah and O are very common. Okay. You tip you write you drop U. Or you can get the three system with a mid vowel somewhere in the middle. And uh, a schwa an uh or uh, an uh sound. And then most people know the five vowel, which is like Spanish, like Japanese, it's E U E O A. Right. And then your seven which is the next step up, usually has all of those, but makes a distinction between what I call tense and lax, a and o. So you have a and a and o and a. Yeah. That's the most common one. And then there may or may not be a schwa-like thing tossed in there as well. Yeah. And figuring out your vowels is very important when you're doing romanization because uh, once you get to the romanization, you have five letters to work with. Right. So if you have more than five vowels, which 
don't let anything discourage you from having more than five because there's plenty of languages. English has 16 vowels. Yeah, ridiculous. But, um, it is quite a lot when you think about it. It's <laughs> just typologically <laughs> unusual. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, basically, if you if you have a lot of vowels, you have to remember that you're either going to have to use digraphs or diacritics to express some of them. Right. Or you so, can just have the sh** that is English. Ah, uh, I have to edit you. Sorry. <laughs> so, so I, I made a list of particular problem sounds, and I have a few devoted to vowels because they really are the trickiest. What do you do about schwa and other mid-vowels? Albanian uses E with the diaresis, so uh, um, Hopi and some other Uto-Aztecan languages, which have these mid-central vowels and, and all of this, um, often use umlauts. So U umlaut in Hopi is usually actually an uh. It is not the sound you'd expect to make from German. Um, Welsh uses a Y, and I think that's a perfectly good use of a Y if you've not used it for something else. That's a bit weird to me, but you may continue. Well, you know, historical linguistics produces such fun spellings. I just, I, well, I, I don't know. I just, I always think of Y as a vowel being E. You, you've been too influenced by YPA. Um, or Scandinavian. Or Scandinavian. Um, and then if you think, you know, you're prepared to do more exotic things, an I with a bar through it or a U with a bar through it are also, they're more likely to be seen in like formal grammars of these languages, but. You know, maybe you can work it into the practical orthography as well. Yeah. So this, um, you mentioned to say this. You, you mentioned this in your notes, William. This is if you need it. This is don't try not to do, go too crazy with diacritics and stuff because even if it's in Unicode, uh, not everywhere. Specifically, if you're active on the Conlang uh, mailing list, it uh, I am constantly annoyed by it mutilating strange characters. Yeah. I would also say, don't be like Vietnamese. It looks terrible. <laughs> oh, with, with stacked diacritics? Yeah, you might want to avoid it. I know, you know, if you have lots of tones and super segmentals that might look like the best way to do it, but just just think very carefully before you start stacking diacritics on top of each other. Right. So that's the problem for Vietnamese. It has a large vowel inventory and a complex tone system. And it just got like the worst aesthetically looking system I've seen. Like, and it was romanized by French people. Right. Yeah. It was just so, like they got the short stick on that one. They really did. Honestly, I don't know how they could do much better. It uh, is. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm less – it is a bit bewildering to look at sometimes, but I'm not sure how they could get better. So, I don't know. It's hard to – unless they you introduce tone numbers, but nobody even, ever wants to read with tone numbers. Yeah, yeah. Like so, even when you see the Arabic with numbers, it's just jarring. <laughs> um, and, and there are a few languages, mostly from Africa, where the, the tense versus – with the the open versus closed a and o sounds, they actually use the IPA, so the the backward c for the a sound, and the little Greek epsilon e for the e sound. Yeah, I've and, seen that, and that's more common. And I've seen one or two conlangs that are especially um, inspired by 
African languages that use this, and that's pretty standard these days, I think. Yeah, it's there's I, there's just a lot of different ways you can go when you are working on a, a romanization, and we're talking all about romanizations because I don't know about the others. Well, William might be able to tell you stuff about Hellenizing stuff, but realistically, most of us are know about the pitfalls of using the the Latin alphabet. And that's well, probably everybody's going to have a romanization. Not everybody's going to try to Hellenize or Cyrillicize their conlang. Well, here's the thing: if you're on an English-speaking board, you better have a good reason for using the Cyrillic alphabet or the <laughs> Greek thing. Because I mean, maybe it's derived from Greek. Maybe you know you really like the way it looks, and you'd have to really, really like it for me to forgive you for using it. Like, if it's derived from one of those, or maybe, say, you have a ton of paladals and you thought, oh, we'll go with Cyrillic or some crap, you'd have to have a good reason for it. Because, I mean, you know, most people here are going to be using the Latin. They're more familiar with it. Why wouldn't you? Right. Again, it's, it's if you if you want an audience. Um, actually, the Russians have a lot of practice coming up with Cyrillicizing because they have all of those interesting languages within the Soviet sphere. Yes. Yes. Um, but sort of rolling back a little bit, vowels, I always find the hardest time coming up with systems of romanization. Vowels are really the hardest just because there aren't that many letters for them. Right, and, and also, there's so many horrible things you can do to them. Well, here's the thing is you have – like I said, we have you have five letters and also almost all of your um, super segmentals, you know, phonemic stress – Tone, nasalization, anything like that. Most of those are going to be, are you're going to want to mark on the vowel, right? Somehow, so you end up with a lot of things like um, you have to just sort of figure out what you you need to do with. Um, uh, I kind of also want to mention. Okay. Um, sorry, you'll remember it eventually. Uh, there are also when you have a bunch of vowels. There are a bunch of, you know, non-standard in the English point of view letters that you can use or diacritics. Like, you know, if you learn Swedish, they have too many vowels, so they made up some letters. You know, you can have, you know, the A with the ring or the O with the slash. You can also add. I wouldn't add a bunch of them because then it looks really silly. I've only used it once, which was for a joke length for shoe elves. <laughs> Which is yeah. basically the only time it's forgivable to have an ash and like, you know, what the crap was it? Yeah, the O slash. Okay, well, and you just you just want to you want to also think about what what diacritics and what what odd characters you're using, and seeing you know, any uh, acute and grave and tilde and um, the umlaut or di diaresis, whichever you're calling it, depending on how you're using it, um, right. will all probably be supported on most systems. But there's like, um, so I I put this into the notes in here. Um, I was taking a Chinese test online, and Chinese uh, pinyin, this test for some reason was half, half in pinyin, which was a little annoying to try to read, but... Um, in, in the first place, but it uses acute, grave, a macron, 
and a Karen over the vowels to mark the four tones. This site, however, was not displaying macrons or carons, so I lost like more than half of the tone information. So, you know, you have to understand also where you're posting things about this. If And uh, most of the time, people support Unicode. But, you know, occasionally you will have to deal with that. So don't use a lot of odd diacritics unless you have to, especially, you know, the, the diacritic stacking we were talking about with Vietnamese. Sure. So that, that reminds me. So there's, there's two issues where diacritic, well, three issues that interact together that can lead to diacritic nightmares. First, nasals, nasalized vowels. Second, long or short vowels. Third, tone. <laughs> tone has a tendency to f*** it so bad. I'm sorry, George. I apologize. But the most common tone systems of the world have a step system, right? It's a low tone or a high tone. Maybe yeah. low, mid, high. Those are easy. Tone contours, then you start to get into all sorts of fun. So... I like to use Navajo as an example here because and Apache is much the same because they had to deal with the same issues. Vowels can be long or short. They can have normal or high tone. They can be nasal or oral. So what they do? So normally for nasal vowels, you put a tilde on things, but that doesn't work because you need an accent mark to mark tone. So they use they, – they stole from Polish and they use agonic, which is that little tail – so you, you write an A with a tail on it. You've got a nasal A. And that leaves you space above the letter to put the tone mark. So normal vowels are written without any mark at all, and high vowels are written with a acute accent. So what, how do you mark a long vowel? You do not have room for a macron, so they simply write the vowels twice. Well, um, that's that's kind of standard, isn't it? It is. I think in some languages it's standard. I, um, it's fairly common, but not know. that common. I mean... There's no particular reason the languages of Australia couldn't have used a simple diacritic to mark long vowels, but maybe there were other people with typewriters meant for the English language which were, you know, who would have found it difficult to keep adding accents. So the convention in Australian languages, even though you don't usually have lots of other diacritical fun going on, is simply to make long vowels written twice. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's always the nightmare. Long and short vowels versus quality versus tone because I, I tend to make tone languages more often than than probably a lot of people do i made a killer tone language once but i couldn't do it anymore i just had to do so many stupid accents and you're right um all other things being equal two tone and three tone systems are easy to deal with and they're common contour tone systems will mess with your head because <laughs> Because you have to find some way to mark all of them, and depending on, you know, you might have four to six tones here, so you right. have to have unique ways to mark all of them. And, and what if you have length on top of that? Because the cheap way I got out of doing the um, contours was by just doing two different ones next yeah. to each other. Sure, which the is... the contours were longer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Happens in Navajo as well, is the same, where you but have... But, yeah, that's why... Um, that's why Mandarin has four different diacritics for tone, uh, which can, in some cases, get stacked on top of an umlaut um, for pinyin. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, it's just sort of, 
you just have to think about what you're going to, um, how you're going to, it's, uh, it, there's just so much of this stuff just depends on what your language is. So without knowing what your language is specifically, we can't give you too much of your, um, of the, uh, advice specifically. So, but we have, but these are just sort of the general things. Anyway, we've gone very long on this topic, so I think it's time we we move on. Any objections to that? No. Could I just plead with everyone to not use Unicode unless you freaking need it? Yeah, Don't yeah, yeah. Don't use weird characters if it's a completely boring sound and your sound system is not huge. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. If you need Engma or Epsilon or the backward C thing for... You're, if that's the only way it, it it will work the way you want it to, then use it. But don't just. I love using Angma. Yeah, I Eng- love using Angma. Yeah, and I'm, it's fine. I will if not you, apologize for it. If you have a reason for it, it's fine. Yeah, you know. Yeah, if I have you, a reason if, for it. I have a velar nasal. Yeah, you, do you have a velar nasal that contrasts with um, the velar nasal plus G? No, still using Angma because I love it. Oh, well. anyway. Uh, oh, well. But you you have a reason to use it. But anyway, um, we need to move on. Yes. So we are going to do something different today in that we are, instead of doing a conlang, we did a poll recently, and most people were uh, happy with this idea that we would occasionally feature natural languages instead of um, conlang. Instead of instead of conlang. Instead of constructed languages. All except for there there were three people who didn't like the idea. Three people who, who, who objected to it outright and two people who suggested a better idea. But 40, but most of the people who responded to our poll were positive about it. So, so here we are today featuring a natural language, which is the nat- language is called, um, what do you call it? Mutsun. But Mutsun. M- Mutsun. It is a Kostanoan language. Um, it, is it still alive? No, it is dead. Dead, okay, dead, dead. It's a dead language. It used, was at one time spoken in San Benito, California, near the San Juan Bautista mission. So, um, if you know where that is, I just know it's in California, but anyway, (laughs) and I really, if anybody's going to try to Google this language, just don't just come to our show notes and click on the link because it's very difficult to Google. The reason we picked this language is because the grammar that we're using for the show is the dissertation of Mark Okrand, the inventor of Klingon. Yes. Now, we should mention that he wrote this on a typewriter (laughs) using, starting off from the, the Americanist transcription system, but... As a function of both of those things, he has some odd ways of transcribing the the phonology because, you know, he wrote it on a typewriter. Right. Well, let's get to that in a second. Um, This dissertation is interesting to me for a number of reasons because how it was written is pretty funky. 
once upon a time, the world was good, and Boaz was, you know, the linguistic anthropologist, and he and his students felt that you studied language by going out into the field and hanging out with people, the last, you know, 50 people speaking some language, and you learned about the language in its context and culture and all of that. And then there was darkness on the face of the deep in the name of Chomsky, who said that language is an autonomous formal system that you can study like symbolic logic or set theory. And all of these great dissertations on dying languages were replaced by dissertations on whiz deletion. What? This – what do you mean okay. what? It's just this American tradition of documenting languages as part of your job of becoming a linguist died when Chomsky came up with his shtick. Mutzen, this grammar exists because Mark Okrand went into the archives of a university and found piles of field notes and field recordings of a language that there were no speakers left for. They were all gone by the time he got to writing this thing up. Yeah, I noticed that he's he's citing people all over the place. This is right. not this is him reconstructing what this language was from other people's notes. From other people's notes, fortunately he had what? That must be terrible. Like when I was doing field methods, one of the best ways of figuring things out was being able to ask them things. Right. And I can't imagine being like, no, why didn't you ask him this? Why didn't you ask them? Why is there a word for rubbing saliva on stuff? <laughs> he can't. Right. So the grammar that we have here is necessarily incomplete. There are things he can't know because he cannot do exactly what Bianca wants to do, which is go ask someone. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's still complete. I, I think it's a remarkable accomplishment that he was able to do this with the material he had. Yeah, it's it's a very I have not gotten I, I will confess, I have not gotten through the whole thing. I was just before the episode trying to skim through. Mm -hmm. It is very, very long and involved and very, very thorough. And as such it has, you know, like fifty pages of phonology. It it a fully a third of this document is about the sound system and phonology. I was wondering why it was I was wondering why it was so phonology heavy, but this explains it. Because yeah. it's very hard to do grammar work when you can't ask things that you think are gonna be wrong to see if you can get the negative proof. Right. Yeah. There's no syntax chapter. Well, but the one thing I did like about the phonology that you usually don't find in conlangs is that it had phonological processes, which you don't find that often yeah. in conlangs, but I enjoy seeing them, so I was well, quite happy about that. Here's the thing. Since we're not – we're evaluating this language, it's a natlang. So probably when we're talking about a Latin atlang, since this podcast is about constructed languages, we need to be looking for things to draw out of this information that we can incorporate into conlanging artistically. So right. that's one thing is look at his look at the um, phonological processes in this language and see what you can come up with. See see if that kind of thing is something you would like to you you should treat in your own uh I was wrong. There's over a hundred pages of phonology. Yeah, it's a yeah. lot of it. So, so one interesting thing about the phonology that I just wanted to mention is because there are a bunch of other Costanoan languages, he has some historical data. For example, the ancestor language at one point had labiovelars, that is qua, gua, gua, that sort of stuff, K with a little W. Those have subsequently disappeared. However, some interesting things happen to noun and verb uh, roots um, when they're derived from. Various kinds of shuffles happen, and sometimes you get K, and sometimes you get W. 
out the other end, and he's able to point to um, historical precedent. Precedent. So I think um, this language is documented mostly from a synchronic rather than a diachronic standpoint. But there's enough diachronic stuff to give you and some great ideas. I think on getting diachronic stuff into your conlang without being overwhelmed by you know if you want to invent a language, why should I have to invent another language first? <laughs> and then derive it. But, but this gives you some things to think about, some, some straightforward stuff, some historical stuff to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can, you can do some of that, and that way you can, you can learn what, um, what things a linguist would be able to discern from a language about a proto-language. Right. And that could serve to limit your work when you're when you're trying to give a sense of history without actually deriving fully. Although I do invite Bianca to look on page 12. This is a common feature of the languages of California and it becomes a stronger feature the further south you go mm-hmm. is that it distinguishes dental from retroflex consonants. Mutsun is way up north compared to the others so it only has the one retroflex. Not unlike Klingon <laughs> I mean, it's fine to do it for one sound, but don't do it for five. Well, and um, we should say, okay, yes, it only has one retroflex, but it only has one stop series. and uh, Right, only voiceless. It's, and it's a retroflex stop, so it's not that. It's not like it, there, there's not even an asymmetry in that particular instance. But uh, Sure there is. There's no nasal for it. There's no affricate. It's just one. It has its, its own column. Yeah, but I mean, there's... But it's not its own column because it's also the stops. It's not like, true. you know, but... they decided to add, like, some weird approximate. I can't okay, first approximate of all, retroflex. What the, am I thinking? The nasals are never, are, are not, are usually not symmetrical with the, the stops. The, and a lot of other, all the others, the fricatives, the, it, an interesting thing is that there are six stops, there are only three fricatives. So um, Sure, but the dental alveolar column is full all the way down. The retroflex only has the one. I mean, presumably, I mean, this is clearly an area effect, right? So you can justify, yeah. getting back to our original topic, you can justify the occasional weird sound in your language if you can say, you know, its neighbors have this sound, especially, yeah. power, that's, especially that's if they're a powerful. Good way, that's a good way of saying it, the occasional strange sound, not the whole horde of occasion of weird yeah, yeah. sounds attacking the thing. Yeah, the, the grab bag of weirdness is... Yeah, no, yeah, you never want to go with a grab bag of weirdness, but as we can see here, you know, a natural language will tend to have one or two odd things at least. And in this case, this sort of oddly has one retroflex, whereas, yeah, I can see that the dental and the, the palatals are almost full mm-hmm. alongside How, it. I have so. a question. How common is it for a language to have a stop series with the equivalent nasals? Um, that's a bit weird because the velar nasal, everyone hates. I know. <laughs> it, it tends to I was... disappear or only occur in very controlled environments. Some yeah. languages have a perfectly – will have nasals for every part of articulation, and others will only have N and M and whatever happens. Yeah, because I was doing some noob lessons on, like, IPA, and I was going through, and I had done the stop series for English, PTK, and BDG. And then I went to do the nasals, so I was like – these are the exact same places. I am so lucky that English does this. 
which um, seems really weird to me because feline nasals aren't that common, I don't think. Well, well it, it, ex- except that, remember, English's uh, velar nasal is extremely, uh, it's, it's only ever it's only occurs a coda. as a coda. Yeah, it's yeah, only it, a coda. It um, only ever occurs as a coda, which is a fairly strong, and I think that happens, I think that's often what the... Uh, constraint is and it is that it can only be a coda in a lot of languages isn't it it is but, but there are some um, there are some places like australia once again comes to mind where every place of articulation will have a nasal equivalent usually mm-hmm. in, in many of these languages but this one this one has and this is this is something that that uh is makes this hard i'm not sure if he me- meant that this is a palatalized n or is it if if it it's a the palatal nasal, yeah, but it looks like it should be the palatal nasal. I think so. Yeah. Um, so, so he has M and and yeah. What's What's interesting about this? I mean, we're, we're kind of obsessing on the sound system in this language. Um, there are various grammatical processes. It's not a heavily polysynthetic language like some of its neighbors and other Native American languages, um, but it does do things to roots to produce different kinds of stems. And that produces all sorts of effects that change vowel length, um, that shuffle, cause syllables to disappear, um, accents to shift. So one of the reasons this language has such an enormous section on sound, the sound system, is because there's so many uh, morphophonetic, morphophonemic changes going on. In terms of the grammar, there are some interesting derivational elements, and it seems a little preoccupied with um, voice. I mean, more than English is, certainly. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be anything remarkably strange grammatically about this language that jumped out at me. Yeah. If you want to see, if you want to see, <clears throat> excuse me, if you want to see um, some applicatives at work, though, you can do this, which includes the magnificent example sentence, you farted on me. <laughs> it's on page 221, if anyone wants to know how to say that in Mutsun. Oh, uh, this is that. That is not uh, one that somebody made up out of thin air. That's that's probably was one on one of his tapes. Right. Some of them. One of somebody said that. I hope he was sitting in the library doing this and started giggling. <laughs> um. Right. It has uh, proclitic and enclitic varieties of pronouns, which appears to be. I don't think um, verbs are conjugated, but we've got various kinds of enclises going on. Um, what was I going to say? It has a medial passive. Yay! <laughs> Yay. I did enjoy the whole, uh, uh, what do you call it? Crap. Anyway, the thing switching places in the sentence with the medial passive and the active, I think. Right. You know, the thing that does stuff and... <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing with the stuff. Well, I can't really say much more because I'm just now like scrolling through the the morphology section. No, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff there that that someone who's used, especially people, <coughs> excuse me, especially people who are stuck in Indo-European or you know Japanese or Turkish, right? These are the languages every linguistic student hears about. There's a lot interesting going on here if you're not used to looking at languages of these types. It actually has a couple different types of reduplication yep. in here, so that you can have a the it has CVC reduplication, where like the first the the first consonant vowel consonants gets reduplicated, and then there's you can reduplicate the whole stem. It looks like. Oh, George, if we if we should talk about 
the the natural language maka sometimes, which has you know a good dozen kinds of reduplication, which is triggered by all sorts of things. That's yeah. a, a, a wonderfully crazy language. Yeah. Anyway, um, um, what, what? yeah. I, most of these languages that we're picking have grammars available freely on the web, which is I hope we can stick with that. Um, yeah. Probably most people wouldn't normally know about this, but Berkeley has a big archive where a lot of these native languages, if the documentation is out of copyright, they make them available. So that's how I picked this one. Yeah, and you know, we'll 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 make sure we look for stuff like we'll we'll make sure that we look for languages that you can find online in some form at least, and probably yeah. you know these publicly available grammars that are public domain. Maybe if we can find if we find grammars on the like public library science and stuff, we can do that. Yeah. Ooh, page 287 has a special kind of imperative suffix, which he calls the, I don't know where the accent on that would be, the anditive imperative, which means go to blah, blah, blah. Go dance. Oh. Go. Oh. We're back here. Go urinate. Does go he have, does, does this language have much, um, I keep, I keep trying to, I, I, I keep messing up saying realizing that this is a natural language. Does this language have any weird um, modal stuff other than that? There's not much talk of that in this. And when you're dealing with just sentences, it's it's harder to come up with natural... Yeah, it might be difficult when you can't ask questions. Right. It's a pretty large document, and it's scanned, so it's hard to search. Mm. Um, So I, I don't recall much in the way of mood. Yeah, I think I'm going to sometime later print this out and read it, but I don't have time to read the whole thing now. But yeah, this is... And if you like us talking about natural languages once in a while, um, shoot us an email if you if you like this idea that we, we're doing this. Um, we are running fairly Late. long in this episode, yep. so we're going to have to... Uh, um, cut off on here, but, you know... Holy was... cow! Sorry, I just saw another derivational affix I missed through. The positional causative. This suffix <laughs> is inf- is infrequently attested, but seems to mean to cause someone to be in a position to. Yes! <laughs> That's on page 220. That's neat. That's neat. Okay, I see the antative imperative now. Um, yes. But anyway, and... <laughs> um, sh- shoot us an email if you like this idea, and, you know... You can you can suggest natlangs too now. I'll, I I may try to modify the form so you can do that. But yeah, um, we won't yeah. be doing this all the time. This is just like an occasional thing. But uh, I hope you guys like us highlighting this. And really, we weren't able to tell you everything that was in this grammar because it's very long. So. Well, it just seems like a good way to bring up languages people might not otherwise have run across. I yeah. think. The other bonus of doing natural languages is we'll come across features that we may not be able to find in conlangs just because, you know, natural languages work in mysterious and crazy ways, and they're good ways to see things to add to your conlang. Yeah, it's it's a great way to find features that nobody else uses in conlangs. <laughs> or because... really interesting example sentences. <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, 
I think that we can sort of wrap this up again. If you like this this idea, shoot us an email. We'll do this sort of from time to time when we feel like it. I'm not gonna like do like every other episode in a net lang, but every every so often we'll do it. So um, anyway, Bianca, do you have any final wisdom? No. Nope. Okay, William. Don't use Q as a vowel. <laughs> I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna also say, as I said before, when you said that, don't use X as a vowel either. Um, Thank you. But anyway, uh, then I'm going to say, happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find us on iTunes or at conlangery.com. You can also follow us on Google Plus and Facebook, or tweet us at at conlangery. If you would like to suggest a featured conlang, natlang, or discussion topic, correct an error, or just say hey, you can email us at conlangery at gmail.com. You can also send audio files to that address or call our voicemail line 304-873-6281. Our theme music was created by Eric Ayler and his band, Null Device. plug it in the one, it doesn't work. I plug it in the other one, it doesn't work. Then I plug it back in the first one, and it works. Um. <laughs> Every single time I have to do that. That's Wait, why we what? call it plug and pray. So this morning, I'm like, oh, we have we have Kong Langery today. So I went up to my coffee shop with a notebook, and I wrote all sorts of stuff. <laughs> but not for the episode we're doing. The funny thing about not being able to work means you pretty much spend a lot of time doing nothing. The famous British bureaucracy. So I'm internet famous today. He managed to get a, some FaceTime for his cat. That's hysterical. A few times now I've heard you use the phrase where you say that something broke your head. <laughs> is that a normal part of your regional dialect or is that some special thing you say? I don't think it's a regional thing. I think it's an idealectal thing. Same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, where I live here, we have neighbors called the Woodcocks. And I'm sorry, I'm immature, but I'm going to laugh at someone with the name Woodcock. <laughs>